Amen. Well, good morning, church. Most of you should know me by now. I'm Pastor Brian, your discipleship and outreach pastor here at Faith Church. And this morning, it's my great, my great pleasure and my greater privilege to open up the Word of God with you. And we're going to be in 2 Samuel 17 and 18 this morning. We're continuing in our series throughout 1 and 2 Samuel titled, In Search of a King. And I want to start with a couple of questions. You ever feel like the bad guys are winning? Like God and his people are losing? At least here on earth? You ever look around and wonder why the people who hate God seem to be succeeding? Why the enemies of God have so much power and influence? Why does God sometimes seem to be passive when his enemies are so aggressive? Do we sometimes ask God, why aren't you doing more to intervene? Well, that's nothing new. Uh, I imagine the, the, the people back when 2 Samuel was being written probably felt the same way. Right? Things were going pretty well for Absalom. And Absalom, is, he has had a, a mostly successful coup against David. So David's in the wilderness and Absalom seems to be winning this, this, this battle that's going on, so to speak. And uh, things are, go are going well for him and they're not going so well for David, God's anointed king and his followers. Absalom has the upper hand. But Absalom forgot one thing. Right? He might have the throne. He might have the palace and all the concubines and all the influence. He might have a larger army. He's got momentum on his side. But he forgot about one thing, the most important thing. God's covenant faithfulness. And we sometimes forget this too, right? We get, we get discouraged by the political and societal circumstances and we forget that God is on the throne and faithful to his promises. Absalom had all the worldly resources on his side, but David has the promises of God. And this morning we're going to see God sovereignly and providentially intervene in order to preserve those promises and to preserve his king and preserve his kingdom. So the title of the message is Kingdom Preserved. A Kingdom Preserved. Before we go any further, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, the great privilege that it is to gather this morning. We thank you for the great power and wonder of your word. We thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword and that it will penetrate our souls, and we pray, we claim the promise that it will, that it will judge the thoughts and attitudes of our heart, that you will open our ears and our eyes to your word this morning. And we ask this in the name of your son. Amen. So a kingdom preserved, and the main idea of this text is that we need to trust in God's providence to preserve his kingdom. We need to trust in God's providence to preserve his kingdom, but he does that through his plans, not ours. So I think that oftentimes we do trust in God's providence. We know that he's in charge, but sometimes we don't really like the way that he does it. So we've got to remember that it's his plans, not ours. And we're going to see that play out in this text. We're going to see God work in some pretty crazy and messy and chaotic ways, but for a very beautiful and wonderful purpose for the preservation of his kingdom. So we got a lot of text to cover this morning, so I'm going to read some of it. Some of it I'm just going to summarize because we've got two whole chapters to get through. But we're going to start with verses 1 through 14 of chapter 17. 
17, 1 through 14. And what we're going to see here is that we need to trust in the sovereignty of God's plan. We need to trust in the sovereignty of God's plan. Before we jump into 17, I actually want to go back to the last verse of chapter 16, where we read that in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So Ahithophel's counsel was like the word of God to these people, and he's with Absalom at this time. He had just told Absalom to sleep with his dad's concubines on the roof, and he did it. Right? That's the kind of power and influence that this guy has. So as we move into chapter 17, Absal or Ahithophel is about to give Absalom some advice. And this is what he says. He says, let me choose 12,000 men, and I'll arise and pursue David. I'll come upon him while he's weary and discouraged, and I'll throw him in a panic. And all the people who are with him will flee, and I'll strike down the, only the king. And I'll bring all the people back to you as a bride comes back to her husband. You seek the life of only one man, and all the people will be at peace. And the advice seemed right in the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Of course it did. It was from Ahithophel. Now his advice is actually not bad advice tactically or militarily or pragmatically, but it is not spiritually sound. It's a plan that is full of bad intentions. It is an ungodly plan. And we know that from the context of what's going on. We also see some evidence of this in verse 3. Verse 3 is where he said um, that I will bring all the people back to you as a bride comes back to her husband. Now in one sense, Ahithophel is right that the Israelites are in fact like a bride without a husband. Or if we're thinking New Testament, a sheep without a shepherd. But his mistake is in thinking that the husband that they need is Absalom. Right? The people of God are absolutely not the bride of Absalom. In one sense, you could think maybe they're the, the bride of David. That doesn't really work out yet because Christ hasn't come. But as New Testament believers, as New Covenant believers, we know that God's people are the bride of who? The bride of Christ. The people, here's the point, the people need to be led back to God not back to Absalom. So the advice is simply ungodly because it goes against God's plan for his kingdom. But then something remarkable happens. Right, so Ahithophel gives Absalom advice, but then he calls for a second opinion, which is pretty amazing because Ahithophel's advice was supposed to be as good as God's. But he calls for a second opinion. He calls for Hushai. I don't know if you, guys, if you remember this guy. We read about him. We heard about him last week. Right, he's the guy that when David was praying, he prayed, this is what David prayed. Oh Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And then in the very next verse, Hushai shows up. Right? And then he finds out that Hushai is loyal to David, so David actually sends him to go be part of Absalom's kind of inner circle. He sends him to go there so that he can discredit Ahithophel's counsel to him. It's the ultimate insider job. Hushai is basically an insurgent who's been planted by David. Anyway, so Absalom calls him in for a second opinion. And we know his loyalty is to David. So here's Hushai's advice. He starts by saying, this time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Which, first of all, that takes a lot of gall because Ahithophel's advice was as good as God's. And he goes on to remind Absalom, he tells him that, remember, your dad and all his men, they are mighty warriors um, and he tells them that they're probably pretty angry and they're hiding. And if, they, if Ahithophel and his men show up, they're going to get ambushed. And the word's going to get out about that. And it's going to make Absalom look bad. 
Then Hushai tells Absalom what you should do is you should go gather all of Israel, get all the people together, and go out and we'll just overwhelm uh, David by force. Now, his advice isn't bad, but it's actually not as good tactically or militarily, right? It's going to take a lot of time to get all these people together. Um, it's, it's actually, you know, whether or not David was still a mighty warrior, and he was probably pretty exhausted, and he's out in the wilderness, and there's some other issues with that. But here's what we do know about Hushai's plan. It, it was made with good intentions, at least better intentions, because Hushai's intent was to preserve and protect David. He wanted to discredit Ahithophel's advice. What he was trying to do was create, <clears throat> he was trying to create more time for David to come up with his own plan and for David to escape. But what's truly remarkable about all this is that Absalom actually chooses Hushai's plan over Ahithophel's, whose counsel was as good as God's, to them. Why? Why would he choose Hushai's advice? Why did he even ask for a second opinion? I'll tell you why. Because God made him do it. Now, you ever hear people say that? Well, God made me do it. Usually it's used in some heretical sense um, or, or people just being funny. But God made him do it. Look at verse 14. This passage is key to this whole text. Verse 14. And Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The counsel of Hushai the archite is better than the counsel of Ahithophel. For the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. You see, this is exactly what David had prayed for back in chapter 15. And his prayer is being answered, even though he, he doesn't see it because he's not there. But David's not the one who makes it happen. God is. The Lord ordained. David may have prayed for it. Hushai may have advocated for it. Absalom may have unknowingly participated in it. But God ordained it. And what God ordains will happen, church. You can write that down. Take it to the bank. What God ordains will happen. And this verse drives the narrative for the entire text. Because while everybody else is making their plans, with, whether it's good intentions or bad intentions, God has ordained a greater plan, a perfect plan, a plan to preserve his king and his kingdom. But we also need to look at the second part of this statement in verse 14, because it's a little bit more shocking than God just ordaining uh, for someone's advice to be spoiled. He says he does it so that God ordains his counsel to be uh, defeated so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. I remember a few years ago, I was in the hospital visiting a friend of mine. He was sick. He had some family visiting him, and I remember one of his family members said, uh, we're going to keep praying for you because we know this is from Satan. God would never do this. He would never allow this to happen. And I just remember being, I wasn't mad about some theological issue. I was heartbroken about the futility of thinking that God wasn't somehow in charge or in control. Because it's important for us to understand that God is never not in control. He is sovereign over all things, and how he chooses to carry out his plans for his people and his kingdom, which, by the way, he created, is entirely up to him. He doesn't have to consult with us about how he chooses to carry out his will. And I know that bothers some of you, but he doesn't have to consult with us. 
If this is hard, if that part of verse 14 is hard for you, I would encourage you to read Romans chapter 9. It talks more about this type of a thing. The bottom line for us as believers, as God's children, is that we should actually find great comfort in knowing that God will do whatever it takes to preserve his kingdom and to demonstrate his glory and to make himself known. And yes, sometimes the way he does those things is not the way that we would do it, and it's not the way that we want him to do it, but we must trust in the sovereignty of God's greater plans. And then the rest of this text is going to show us how this truth of verse 14 plays out. So let's move on to verses 15 through 29. You guys have probably heard that saying before. You hear it a lot from just from people in society. You hear from the media that we don't want to be on the wrong side of history. You don't want to find yourself on the wrong side of history. Well, for us as Christians, as believers, it's not so much that we don't want to find ourselves on the wrong side of history because society gets to determine that. We don't want to find ourselves on the wrong side of God's story. Because that's what God determines. And so we want to align ourselves with God's kingdom. We want to align ourselves with God's kingdom and with what those plans are. Even if we don't see them, we want to be a part of his plan and his story. So in verses 15 through 29, we're going to see some explicit examples of how God uses people who are committed and aligned to him. And we're actually going to see that contrasted with someone who aligned himself against God. So let's look first at verses 15 through 22, and where we're going to see some sacrificial commitment. So Hushai tells the priests, right, Zadok and Abiathar, they're still loyal to David, but they're also with Hushai in kind of Absalom's court. But he tells them to go tell David. But what they're supposed to do is the, Hushai tells the priests who are supposed to tell their sons, uh, Jonathan and Ahamaz, to go tell David. But then there's another, there's a female servant in the middle of this somewhere. We just know it's a female servant. We don't know her name. Um, so he tells the priests who are supposed to tell this female servant who are going to give the message to the sons who are going to go tell David. So there's this kind of elaborate and intricate plan. Why is it? Why is that? Well, because it was too dangerous for David's loyalists to enter the city. Right? It was too dangerous for them to go do that on their own. So they go to execute this plan. It doesn't go quite as they planned because someone actually sees the priest's sons in the city and they go tell Absalom and he sends his men. He sends his henchmen after these guys. So they take off and they come to a house of this man who has a well. And him and his wife, they, they let the, those men hide down in the well and they cover the well up and when Absalom's guys show up, they're like, yeah, I don't know where those guys are at. They left. So those guys take off and go back to Jerusalem. <clears throat> and after they left, the men come out of the well, the priest's sons, and they go and they, they give the message to David. And they tell him, arise, David, go quickly over the Jordan. And David arose along with all of his people, and it says that by daybreak they had all crossed the river. So the message made it. Things didn't go as expected or as planned, but the message was still delivered. The mission was still accomplished because, God, because part of God's plan, right? this whole mission was part of God's plan to preserve his kingdom. And I'll tell you what I love about this section. As I love how God uses the faithfulness and the commitment of both priests and ordinary citizens to accomplish his purpose. 
That's an important lesson for us, church, because these people, they were committed to the purposes of God and God's king, regardless of the circumstances or the, or the potential consequences to them. Because it was dangerous. You got to remember that Absalom is the guy who murdered his brother, who burned down the fields of his neighbor, and who was trying to kill his own dad. So I don't think it would be a stretch to say that they were actually putting their lives on the line. In fact, I think what we see here is, is perhaps an Old Testament example of what it means for people to take up their cross and follow God's king. In their commitment, because of their commitment, God used them to participate in kingdom work. And we would do well to consider the same thing for our lives. Are we committed to God and his king? Are we, what would you be willing to do or to sacrifice for the sake of God's kingdom? Your reputation? Your job? Your financial security blanket? What about your life? Because God uses those who are committed to him, who put the purposes of God before the purposes of man or self, so are you allowing God to use you for the sake of his kingdom? And if not, what is holding you back? Now, don't get me wrong. Right? The people are, real, are not the hero of this story. Who's the hero of the story? God is always the hero of the story, okay? So let's not fool ourselves. If, if the people would have said no, or if the circumstances would have changed, God wouldn't be going, oops, my plan didn't work. Right? He's, not, he's not crossing his fingers thinking, Oh, I really hope that Brian does what I want, right? That, that's not how God works. But here is the deal. God's going to use somebody. And you should be excited about the thought of God using you to accomplish his purposes. God hasn't called us to be spectators to his kingdom. He's called us to be servants and participants. That doesn't mean that everybody needs to go into full-time ministry and become pastors or missionaries, but it does mean that we should be asking the question of God. What would you have me do for your kingdom? What can I do for your kingdom? But this isn't the only way that we see God using people. Um, I, we're actually we're going to skip verse 23 for a second, but we're going to come back because it's a very important verse, but it's sort of a break in the story. So we're going to skip that for a second. We're going to look at 24 through 29. In 24 through 26, we see some, some information about, about the two armies gathering. Uh, we see that Absalom is, has put Amasa over the army instead of Joab, which is kind of weird in one sense, but when you consider that he had just burned down Joab's fields like a chapter or two ago, maybe Joab didn't want to be in charge of his army. And so Joab's actually with David. We'll see that later. But then what we see in 27 through 29 is we see some people show up with supplies and support for God's people. We see some servant-hearted support. Servant-hearted support. So when David came to Mahanaim, uh, the, these three guys, at Shobi, Makir, and uh, Barzillai. You guys can read all the names and places that are in here if you want. They're not easy to pronounce. Anyway, these three folks, they brought beds, basins, earthen vessels, wheat, barley, flour, grain, beans, lentils, honey, curds, sheep, and cheese, and brought them for David and his people to eat. For they said the people are hungry and weary and thirsty in the wilderness. So these servants of God, they show up to support the work of God's people. 
One of them is actually a, a, a pagan brother of one of David's enemies. He's a pagan king, his brother. One of them is actually a former loyalist to Saul. And another one is just some old guy who's a senior citizen. We don't know nothing about him. We'll, we'll hear more about him later, though. But what that does is it reinforces what we just talked about, that God uses various people to accomplish his purposes. But more than that, these people came from different places and different backgrounds, but what united them was a heart to see God's work continue. Right? What's the lesson for, this, for us? Maybe God hasn't called you to participate in ministry or, or, or whatever the same way as others, but that doesn't mean we can't be a part of what he's doing or support what God is doing. You know, on one hand, I actually want to commend us as a church because we have been extremely faithful, especially financially, in supporting what God is doing. Most of you answer the call well when we ask for support, when we've asked people to support across nations or to build wells in India, and we're always overwhelmed by support. But on the same note, we can never think that the work is done. Right? So I want to encourage you to always consider and always pray about how you can support and provide for the work that God is doing. And that might be physically, where you're actually doing things. That might be spiritually and emotionally, where you're, you're coming alongside folks and praying with them and praying for them. That might be financially, but pray about ways that you can support the work of God. Okay, now back to the story. Okay, so we see these these different ways that people are serving God. But now let's go back to that verse in 23. Because what we find here, sandwiched between these two stories of faithful servants, is a story about the fate of someone who chose to align himself against what God is doing and against the king. It's a story of hopeless opposition. The hopeless opposition of Ahithophel. This is the guy that gave... He was a traitor to David, and then he gave Absalom this, that, that advice that he didn't follow. And this is what it says in verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his counsel was not followed, he saddled his donkey and went off, to, uh, went off home to his own city. He set his house in order and hanged himself. And he died and was buried in the tomb of his father. We could say a lot about suicide, but that's not the main point of this text. What the author is doing, really what God is doing with this story, is he's holding up the significance and value of these people who served God up against the hopelessness of someone who rejected and opposed God. You guys, Ahithophel had everything going for him. He was the king's most trusted advisor. He was about to be the next king's most trusted advisor. He had success and wealth and power and influence. He had friends in high places. He had all the things that people dream of. But as soon as it was taken away, he had, nothing to he had nothing left to turn to. And that's not much different than what we see today, right? Whether people have those worldly and material things or whether they, they want those things, right? And then once they find out that they either can't achieve them or they do and it's taken away from them, from them or they do and it's not as fulfilling as they thought it would be, they realize that once they put their hope in those things, it's gone. All hope is lost. And in the most grievous of circumstances, they realize they have nothing else to live for. And that was Ahithophel. 
Right? He had put his worth and his significance and his identity, and he wrapped it up in being a successful advisor and counselor to the king. Now, maybe he did it because the king just didn't take his advice. Or maybe it was because he realized that the one that he had aligned himself with was not actually the true king. Either way, what we know is that he had placed his hope in something that was now gone. And he had nothing more to live for. Meanwhile, those other folks that we just read about, they had something more significant and eternal to live for. They had found their identity in something greater. They found their identity in being the people and the servants of God. And so even if their plans had failed, they still had hope in a God who was sovereign and eternal. They were able to give up or sacrifice what they had on earth because they knew that they had a greater treasure and reward in heaven. We would do well to have that same perspective, to remember that God is sovereign and he's got greater plans than we could ever imagine. And that we should align ourselves with that sovereign God and his plans, not the plans of men. This perspective is also important to keep in mind as we move into chapter 18, because here we're going to see the the messy consequences of sin, and we're going to see the reality of God judging one of his enemies. So let's turn to chapter 18. And here what what, what I want us to see, or what the scriptures are going to tell us here, is that we need to trust in God's providential ways. Now, on the surface, this sounds a little bit like what I said in 17, where we need to trust in God's sovereign plan. But what's different is here, I want us to focus on God's ways, because too often we know that God's in charge, but we question his tactics. So let's look at verses 1 through 5. We're here, we're actually going to see the bias of man. We're going to see that David's judgment's a little bit clouded here. So in verses 1 through 5, we're in chapter 18 now. David gathers his army, he splits them in thirds, he puts Joab, Joab's brother, and Ittai the Gittite, if you remember him from last week as well, he puts them in charge of the the thirds. And then David says, I'm going to go out to battle with you guys. And his people say, no, you're not. And pick it up in verse 3, they say, you shall not go out, talking to David. For if we flee, they're not going to care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. And the king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So David ends up staying back. He doesn't go out to battle with him, but he leaves them with this one command. It's in verse five. The king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard the king give the orders and all the commanders about Absalom. So why? Why does he tell them to deal gently with Absalom? There's a lot of speculation about that, but I don't think it's too much to simply say that God still cared about his son. It's pretty amazing that he does, but he probably does. And that's probably why he wanted to go out to battle as well, so he could see his son or save his son. But what we know from back in verse in chapter 17, verse 14, is that God had already ordained for Absalom to be harmed. And we also know from the, the, the past handful of chapters that Absalom has escaped justice way too many times. David should have held him accountable multiple times on multiple occasions, but he never did, and he's not going to do it now either. 
You see, David's view of justice is biased. It's clouded by compassion for his son. And oftentimes, we have a similar problem. Right? We have biases and desires and tendencies that influence how we think God should do things. We don't like things that don't seem fair to us or that don't fit the narrative that we like. But church, we don't get to determine what is fair. We don't get to determine the narrative of God's story. Yet we try. And yet here is David still trying to do things his own way. So God... In his providence, he's going to intervene. And that's what we're going to see in verses 6 through 9. We're going to see God intervene providentially. So the battle begins between David's men and Absalom's men. It's taken place in, in a forest, the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel, it says, the men of Israel were defeated by the servants of David, and the loss there was great that day, 20,000 men. And the battle spread over the face of all the country, and the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. So let's look at this idea of God's providence here. We don't know exactly what it means that the forest devoured more people than the sword. What we do know is that from a military standpoint, it was much more advantageous for David's smaller force to be fighting in the forest, in the woods. It was much more advantageous for him. So we, one thing we can conclude is that fighting in that forest was not a coincidence. When you think about all the, the timing of David finally getting the message and the battle and all that kind of stuff... Right? We can conclude that God had ordained for the battle to happen in that place and at that time. It was providential. God's providence does it in there. Look at verse 9. It starts with, and Absalom happened to meet the servants of God. Yeah, he just happened to run into these guys, right? He just happened to run into some David's servants who also, by the way, happened to be Joab's soldiers. Probably not a coincidence. And then we keep going. Look at the rest of verse 9. Absalom was riding on his mule, and the mule went under the thick branches of a great oak, and his head was caught in the oak. And he was suspended between heaven and earth, while the mule that was under him went on. So here we have the providential circumstance, not a coincidence, of Absalom getting stuck in a tree. First of all, this was a trained mule, okay? This was Absalom, right? He didn't have the stupid and lame mule, right? He would have had the best one. So we see some, some, some providence in that. And then let's talk for a moment about Absalom being suspended between heaven and earth. It's a sure sign of impending judgment. He's not on earth. He's not really in heaven. So he's left hanging there and we're asking, what's going to happen to Absalom? David wasn't willing to deal with Absalom and judge him. So now God has intervened. And so here's Absalom, ready to be judged. And then verses 10 through 18, we're going to see God execute that judgment. He's going to execute justice toward Absalom. So uh, this is verses 10 through 18. A certain man saw it and told Joab, I saw Absalom hanging in an oak. And Joab said to him, you saw him? Why didn't you strike him there to the ground? I would have been glad to give you 10 pieces of silver, silver in a belt. But the man says, even if I felt in my hand the weight of a thousand pieces of silver, I would not reach out my hand, hand against the king's son. For in our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, for my sake, protect Absalom. 
On the other hand, if I had dealt treacherously against him, and there's nothing hidden from the king, then you would have stood aloof. So Joab says, I'm not going to waste my time with you. And he took three javelins in his hand and thrust them into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak. And then ten young men who are Joab's armor bearers surround Absalom and struck him and killed him. Then Joab blew the trumpet and the, tr and the troops, they came back from pursuing Israel. And they took Absalom and they threw him in a pit in the forest and raised over him a big heap of stones. And all Israel fled to, to, uh, each one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. So Absalom dies. Absalom experiences the fulfillment of the harm that God had ordained for him. And you might ask, is death really the harm that God had ordained to him? I would say yes. The fifth commandment alone tells us to honor your mother and your father. And it's the only commandment that comes with a promise. And what's that promise? That your days will be what? Long. I think it's safe to say Absalom did not honor his father. And his days were cut short. More than that, the issue of Absalom's sin is even greater. It's much greater than that. He was a murderer. He was a traitor. He was a liar, an adulterer. In some ways, he was a thief. He burned down his neighbor's field. He was the enemy of David, and he was the enemy of God. And he deserved to die for his sin. But before we get on our righteous high horse and say, yeah, Absalom was horrible. He definitely deserved to die. Maybe we should remember that the punishment for all sin is death. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. Genesis 3 reminds us that death is the punishment that came with sin. So let's not forget that anybody who has ever sinned deserves to die. That includes Absalom, that includes David, that includes you, and that includes me. So we see here that God has dealt justly with Absalom. But before we look at how God deals with us and our sin, let's look briefly at this pillar or monument that we, that we read about of Absalom's. Remember that Absalom was born into royalty. Right? He was born into the king's inheritance, and all he had to do was live rightly as part of the royal family to inherit his part of the kingdom. But instead, we find Absalom at the end of his life with no legacy other than a pile of rocks and a pillar. What's interesting, and I didn't know this until this week, is that there is still a monument to Absalom to this day in Jerusalem. Right? It's called the, the Tomb of Absalom or, or the Monument of Absalom or the Pillar. Um, it's probably not the same one because it's only dated to about the first century, but um, what we do know is that it still serves its purpose as a, as a monument to Absalom's legacy. Because get this, this is what the Jews do with that monument. Right? They've done this for centuries. When they go by there, they throw rocks at it, right, as, as a curse to Absalom. It's in disgust for Absalom's rebellion. They literally throw rocks at it. The other thing they do, and this is, this is kind of funny, they take their children out there and tell them the story of Absalom's disobedience to his parents and what the consequences are. <laughs> so, if, so I thought that was rather comical. 
And, and it is funny, but it's also very telling of the legacy that Absalom ended up with. Because this was the man who desired to be famous as the king of Israel and is now infamous as an example of what happens to someone who rebels, not against just their earthly father, but against the heavenly father. So Absalom is dead. Justice has been served. The threat to the throne and the kingdom have been defeated. The coup has been thrown back. God's enemy is destroyed. The king has been saved. So all is well in God's kingdom, right? No, not so fast. If you've read any, any of the Bible, you know that that's probably not true. So let's finish this chapter by looking at how we should respond to God delivering his people from the enemy. And we'll look at David's response, and we'll look at how we should respond. So what happens next is Ahimaaz. This is one of the priest's sons that we read about earlier. He wants, he wants to go tell David. He tells Joab, oh, let me go tell David that Absalom's dead. And Job's like, no, you don't want to go, right? David's not going to take it very well. So he sends some other guy, a Cushite. We don't know his name. But then Ahimaaz insists, and Joab says, fine, just go. Ahimaaz gets there first, right? He ran faster, took a different route. We don't know. He gets there first. And he starts to tell David the news, but he kind of chickens out because David says, well, what about Absalom? And, David, and Ahimaaz goes, oh, I don't know if I want to tell him about that. But what he does say to him is this. He says, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against the, my Lord the king. I think the reason Ahimaaz wanted to tell David is because he genuinely thought he was delivering good news. He wanted to be the one to tell, to tell David that the Lord had delivered him. The Lord had delivered. But David's more concerned about Absalom. And then the Cushite shows up. And listen to what he says. This is good news for my Lord the King. The Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. So again, there's this excitement about the fact that God has delivered the King from his enemies. David should be rejoicing in God's deliverance, but he doesn't. He responds by asking, is it, is it well with Absalom? Is Absalom okay? He doesn't ask about the kingdom. He doesn't praise God. He says, what about Absalom? And the Cushite answers, may the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. He says, may all who oppose God's king suffer the wrath of God. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and, re nope, over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would I had died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. So again, he's more concerned about Absalom than about the kingdom. Yet what we've seen is that God, in his great sovereignty, has worked providentially through people and through circumstances to deliver David and to preserve his kingdom. But instead of rejoicing, David is mourning. I'm not saying that David shouldn't mourn the death of his own flesh and blood, although he probably should have done that a long time ago before Absalom physically died. But David's upset for a couple of reasons. He's probably upset because he wanted things to go differently. He surely wanted his son to live. He wanted to be reconciled to his son. He wanted to live happily ever after with his son. But this is the Bible, not a Hallmark movie. 
And so that's not what happens. David is grieved. But more important than that, I think that David recognizes, one of the reasons he's grieving is that he recognizes that all of this has happened as the result of sin. It's the result of Absalom's sin, but also the result of his own sin. Back in chapter 12, Nathan had told David that the sword would not depart from his house, and it hasn't. Amnon died as the result of his sin. Absalom dies as the result of his sin. David had an infant that died as the result of David's sin. Ahithophel died as the result of his sin. David deserves to die as a consequence for his sin, but David doesn't die. Why? Why was David spared, but the rest of them all had to die? David was, we know David was just as much of a sinner as them. If you don't know that, then you haven't been paying attention. But I'll tell you why David didn't die, why David was spared, because of God's great mercy. David didn't die because God chose to place his punishment on somebody else. His infant son died as the consequence of his sin. The sword remained in his house and killed two of his sons as the consequence of his sin. You see, David's sin did not go unpunished. The punishment was simply placed elsewhere. And the same is true for you and I. Our sins will not go unpunished. And if you continue to reject God's plan for salvation through Jesus, who's the king of all kings, then you're going to face that punishment personally. And you'll be separated from God eternally. But if we embrace God's plan of salvation through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, substitutionary because he died in our place. He died the death that we deserve for our sins, even though he was sinless as our substitute. Right? 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We have been made right with God because our sins were dealt with in Jesus. And if we believe and embrace that and repent of those sins, then we can be confident that our sins have been dealt with justly. God was faithful to deliver David and those who were faithful to him from their enemies, but they had to allow God's plan to unfold. And God has continued and continues to deliver his people even now. People like you and I from the enemy. But he does it according to his plans and his ways. So even though God may work in mysterious ways and unknown ways, sometimes even difficult and destructive ways, we need to trust that God's plan is perfect. A plan that works out for his glory and our deliverance. And we should align ourselves with what God is doing, even if we don't see it. And we should rejoice in the fact that God's providence has delivered us from the enemy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your precious promises, for the precious promises that we see in your word. And God, we confess to you that we are often frustrated and we struggle with understanding the way that you do things and how you do things and when you do things. But we are grateful 
for these promises and these assurances that you have a greater plan and that you will carry out the things that you have ordained in order to preserve your kingdom. So God, help us to align ourselves with you, to place our hope in a kingdom that is much more eternal than anything on this earth. Help us to trust in your promises, to believe that you will preserve your people. And God, we rejoice in your deliverance. We rejoice that you have provided your son for us that we could live forever with you. We pray this in the precious son of your name, in the precious name of your son. Amen.